Hi, this is Corey McRae, the senator for the 45th Legislative District, and you're listening to the Condoy Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, it's been a busy week here at Mako as we are back in the building at 169 Conduit Street in Annapolis. A lot to get through today. The Legislative Committee here at Mako did meet this week. They adopted legislative initiatives. We also talked about opioids and a potential settlement there. So we're going to get into all that today. But how are you doing? How is it being back in the building on this bright and sunny day in Annapolis? I like being back in the studio, back on Conduit Street for the Conduit Street podcast. So that feels right. That feels good. And honestly, when we reconvene the legislative committee this time of year, uh, it's sort of a mental turning point that it, to some degree we start talking about the big issues that Mako wants to take on for next year's session. And in my mind, it's, it's, it's sort of like they, they, they wave the flag and the race starts and you start spinning your wheels. So like that's the mode I'm in. I'm ready to go now. I'm ready for session. And I mentioned opioids. I mentioned that there's a big settlement that our legislative committee went through. And with us to walk through all of that as the first time on the podcast, our colleague DePaul Nibber is here. And DePaul, thank you so much. Give a little introduction and talk about while you're here to talk about opioids. Sure thing. Um, so my name is DePaul Nibber. I am now an associate policy director here. Um, my portfolio is going to include public information and ethics. Uh, health and human services, which I'm big on, and I'll explain in just a second. Uh, government liability in courts, public safety, and then housing and community development. That's why we need you here, because because <laughs> these these public health and legal issues have an intersection yeah. on exactly what we want to talk about on the back end of today's pod. All right, Michael. So busy week at Mako. We mentioned the legislative committee adopted our legislative initiatives for the 2022 session. Talk a little bit about that process and let's talk about what the top four will be for Mako going into the 2022 session. Well, I will say Mako is lucky in a lot of respects that we get so much time and attention from our elected officials from across the state. And we brag all the time about how we literally drag elected officials from every jurisdiction down to Annapolis every week during the heart of the legislative session in the cold winter months and so forth. And they come down here and they slog through a lengthy agenda to guide what MAKO ought to do, bill by bill, topic by topic. Uh, my counterparts in other states are usually shell-shocked when they hear we go through that. Sometimes, you know, a lot of organizations, they just adopt a big blanket policy. We're worried about this thing and the staff will sort out what, what do we think about individual bills. For us, if you're the county commissioner, you're the county executive, you're on the council, you come to MAKO, you read through those bills, you talk about, hey, with that amendment, I think I'd be okay. We'll give you that direction. So we benefit from having their engagement and guidance. And a part of that every year is while the legislature's out of session, we gear up for what should be the top of our walk around list for the coming year. So we call those our legislative initiatives. In the springtime, we send out a call and say, what should be on Mako's list? And fortunately, lots of people take this seriously. So our professional affiliate groups and others who we work with and our county elected officials, they go, 
governing bodies send us letters and emails and so forth. And we end up with, I think this year was 38 different right, things right. submitted. So it's a healthy process for a group like ours to start with a giant list and work our way down to what should be really the top priority one page walking around sheet. And that's what we just finished up. Right. And so it's four because that's what's in the bylaws, right? I mean, we could have 10. There are yeah, multiple. We could have. Well, for, yeah. This year, especially we had so many things that lots of counties were interested in and like large and small and fiscal and non-fiscal mm-hmm. and all over the map on, on topics. And that's, that's kind of as it ought to be. Uh, but I don't know, our, our folks before us, uh, created, than us. Yeah, created bylaws that said, you know, if you, if you say you're focusing on 17 things, then you're not focusing. So pick a list of four and talk to that many people and have that many things with your brand on it. And that's, it's served us really well over the years. Right. But it is important to remember, you mentioned the legislative committee coming to town every week during session. They will take positions on hundreds of bills. Right. NACO will be weighing in on hundreds of bills, but these are the top four. The first one here, investing in local infrastructure, highway user revenues. If you are a dedicated listener to this podcast, you know we talk a lot about roads, bridges, highway user revenues. Michael, this one's been on the list before. This is a recurring initiative, but it's been off the list for a few years. Talk a little bit about this one. Yeah, I, I think I think we will get into a little more detail in in the next few weeks, but suffice it to say, in Maryland, we count on local governments for the overwhelming share of the maintenance of your roads and bridges. So all those roads that get you home, they're taken care of by your county or in some cases by your town. And we don't have anything like a local gas tax. We don't have our own revenue source that's directed for that stuff. For decades, we've counted on a carve out from the state's gas tax and from their transportation revenues. Uh, that's a system that worked really well right up until the Great Recession. Things went south and we haven't really clawed our way back. Um, we, we made some ground a few years ago and got sort of a five-year commitment that was helpful, but we're closing out that five-year commitment soon. It's time to run this up the flagpole and hopefully take another step forward on that. So that's the first initiative. The second has to do with public official protections. We've seen nationwide, we've seen these terrible stories about, you know, forward facing public officials being threatened, being intimidated. We want to do something about that. And that's the second initiative, right? Yeah. So, so that's the kind of thing that's we're responding to things we've heard from our membership and from professionals in and around county government. Um, as it turns out, Maryland's, Maryland's already got a pretty good law that says if you're hostile and mean and you threaten and intimidate your county commissioner or the state's attorney or a, a specific list of officials, then that's sort of a separate criminal offense. And we're, we're not sending people to jail for doing this stuff, but it is a separate offense. And you can say, hey, don't do that. There, that's against the law. Cut that out. Right. Um, being able to extend a law like that or to fashion a new one that protects people like our health officers or election administrators, um, people who are making decisions that can tick somebody off uh, and who might inspire the same kind of nasty treatment, um, I think they deserve that too. And I'm glad that our county leaders want to send the message, you know, we, we got your back. Right. And the third will be about elections. We've heard this one before too. We had this as an initiative last year. I think we've cleaned this up a bit. We want to make sure that counties who provide a lot of the funding for elections 
And we really just want to spell out what the state pays for, what the counties pay for. That benefits everyone. And the fourth one here is going to be supporting emergency services. And this has to do with with transport, right? Ambulance transport and when counties, EMS folks are able to be reimbursed for when they transport a patient. And this gets in the weeds again, and we won't do it now, but just give us the the quick synopsis of what this initiative is. I I just think that the nature of medical care and where it happens and how it happens is evolving rapidly. And I don't know, we've had this recurring theme on the podcast over the last few years about technology moves more rapidly than policy and we have to catch up. I mean, the fact of the matter is we are sometimes sending an ambulance out to a 911 call and helping a person right on site and resolving their medical problem right there. But under Maryland law, there was no health care. Nothing happened. So an insurance company has no event to send a bill for. Um, it's a weird hole in the boat in the way we try and support what is among the most essential services we provide in local governments. I think there are ways to modernize and fix that. And I want to take a good swing at that with our friends in the General Assembly this year. Okay, so 2022 initiatives, local infrastructure, highway user, then public official protections, the county role in elections, and supporting emergency services. All of those are right in line with the mission of our county governments, and we're going to cover each of these topics in the weeks ahead. If you remember, if you are, again, a faithful listener, you'll recall that last year we sort of went in-depth on each initiative. We will plan to do that here on the podcast in the weeks ahead, so please stay tuned for that. Now, we also mentioned at the front again about opioids. Attorney General Brian Frosch was a guest with our legislative committee this past week, and he talked to counties, to local elected officials about a nationwide settlement and how Maryland plays into that. And before we go any further, I will say this is not going to get too into the weeds. This is not going to be a bunch of legalese. You do not have to be a lawyer to listen to this episode. You don't have to be an expert either, but this is interesting policy, full of trade-offs. And again, we have DePaul to, to, to help us walk through this. But Michael, why don't you go ahead and set this up before I let you and DePaul just, just do back and forth and, and get the heck out of the way. Well, I, I mean, so I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not steeped in, in the legal side of this, but like I smell a good policy and political drama when, when one's coming. And this topic just has a little bit of everything as nearly as I can tell. So like intergovernmental relations stuff, things about the federal government, the state government, and county and municipal governments. We've got all of them are players here. And these are things that's being sorted out by lawyers, a judge in Ohio trying to consolidate a bunch of cases. Uh, states and local governments have, have gotten their representation. And so there's lots of lawyers engaged on the facts, but also on the numbers. You've got an enormous public policy and public health issue that this opioid crisis has not gone away. By some metrics, it's even gotten worse during this pandemic. Um, it's a really big ongoing issue. There's an emerging consensus that the manufacturers and distributors and people who advertised and promoted these products are at least partially or substantially at fault for this problem that's gotten so out of control in our society patching things up, trying to find money to help the continued costs for all these public functions and reaching people in public health. I mean, this is something for everybody. So it's not just we're going to read through the footnotes and the marginalia of, you know, some absurd legal decision. Like this is really contemporary public policy and the intergovernmental stuff is just really cool. So, so that's yeah. my sales pitch for, for why this is worth talking about and why we wanted to have DePaul join us because he's better on this than the two of us combined. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for that. 
So, I, I mean, I do come from the services side of things. So I, I was previously at the Baltimore City Health Department. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that we did there was go out and scour the community for people that needed assistance. Mm-hmm. And it was an all-hands-on-deck effort. Um, right. I mean, I, I was on walks with police um, local service providers and it was just a matter of like, what can we do to help this person in front of us? Because we would regularly see people shooting up and, Mm -hmm. and, um, the, the opioid epidemic is real and it's only, and like you said, it's only gotten worse. Last year was our worst year on worst year on record. Um, And I I find that fascinating because with the pandemic, I feel like that's really the the epidemic, the opioid epidemic has taken a backseat and people have sort of forgotten about that. Before the pandemic started, I feel like this was in the news all the time. It is an all hands on deck approach. We're seeing this across every jurisdiction in Maryland. This is not just a large or small county or a rural or urban issue. It's everywhere, right? And now we're finally getting to, to what seems like a resolution and holding folks accountable for, for what has happened. But, but that gets tricky, right? Especially when you're trying to yeah. do this nationwide and you're dealing with all these states and local governments and trying to get everybody on board with what is going to happen to hold folks accountable. And, yeah. and as we, as we reference opioids, I mean, it's kind of a term of art and public policy people have started to use that word easily. But what I guess what we're really talking about here is there's a whole class of, narcotics and medications under this umbrella of opioids, but essentially the issue of the moment are legal medications that can be prescribed that we now know maybe better than years ago, um, have, have the potential for people to become very seriously addicted to that medication and then potentially dependent on alternatives to scratch that itch. If they can no longer get a supply of that medication, right? Yeah. There's no shortage of um, media focused on this issue right, right now, basically saying like, well, we overprescribed this. We didn't realize that it would result in addiction. And uh, now we're seeing the repercussions of it. Or maybe um, some later. folks did realize it, right? And didn't yeah. say anything. So DePaul, over the yeah. past few years, we've had a lot of state and local governments file suits against the various players here that we've talked yeah. about in the pharmaceutical industry. And basically what they're saying is what you just said, their behavior has led to the opioid crisis that we've seen growing and growing. And instead of all of these individual cases, there has been a consolidation of, at the federal level, right, DePaul? And let's yep. talk a little bit about that and how that's happened. And now lead us up to where we are. Let's talk through the history of this and how we got to where we are today. Sure. Um, so probably more than a decade ago, there, there, there were the first couple of opioid lawsuits um, against manufacturers, the distributors, um, even retailers that were selling this, uh, these drugs. And so many people got involved. So many entities um, filed suit that it became necessary to kind of cons- consolidate. Mm-hmm. And so um, in December of 2017, a, a, a very brilliant judge out in Ohio was tasked with taking over 3,000 of the prescription opioid-related suits right. and consolidating them into one. Mm-hmm. 3,000 different losses. These are, these are cities and towns, county governments, states, uh, like the whole soup to nuts, all of whom have various suits against either someone who made the pill or distributed the pill amongst retailers or ended up selling the pill or whatever. That's right. At all these different levels, basically get it all under one judge and hopefully work this out in an orderly way rather than in a landslide. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, it's a mountain to yeah. overcome yeah, yeah, in yeah, terms yeah, yeah. of uh, litigation. Um, and, you know, maybe we need more judges on the federal level. I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, in any case, um, we got a, a resolution in this particular situation um, involving um, Johnson & Johnson and the big three uh, opioid prescription medication distributed. And so that consolidation, though, it benefits not only all the, the cities, towns, counties, and states across the country, it also benefits the folks who, who are at the other side of this, right? These big manufacturers, distributors. That way, they don't have to go to all these different states and counties and fight these suits. They are consolidating them. And so, although they're going to have to spend a ton of money because rightfully so, yep. you know, they have contributed to this. And I think we, we've seen that be the case now. It, it's been proven. But for them, I think it makes sense to have to just deal with this one shot and not yep. have to go all over the place and hide, hire all these lawyers to go and deal with this stuff. Yeah. I mean, there is a calculus at play, right? You get enough uh, states on board such that you only have to hand, deal with like a handful of outlier states mm -hmm. um, that are suing. Um, it, it's much better to deal with five suits than it is to deal with 50 separate ones. So <laughs> it makes a lot right. of sense for them. And, I, and I'm sure that part of the calculus that is is the the notion that it seems likely that judges and juries left to their own devices would start finding for these plaintiffs that yep. that there's, a, there's enough evidence and paper trail to suggest Oh, your company was telling doctors, go ahead, it's fine, it's safe, go ahead and prescribe this. Where there's yeah. incentives, we'll, we'll, we'll fly you to this wonderful warm climate, you know, event if you, if you, you know, get enough, move enough, move enough product, mm -hmm. right? I mean, oh, yeah. I, yeah, so, so there's been enough exposure of that kind of activity that I think the companies have said, we're going to be on the hook. So let's try and dispatch this in an orderly way. Um, and it's, it's weird when you start yeah. talking about the number of dollars at stake mm -hmm. here, it's like, why would billions. they agree to this? Yeah. Bees, 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 right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this isn't millions. This is billions. <laughs> uh, that's a, that's a lot of dollars. These are companies that have gotten really wealthy by manufacturing, distributing and selling these medications in many cases to people who can't get unhooked. And yeah. so over time, of course, this is led to settlement talks with with yeah. these big players. And DePaul, what happened last July? There was a big settlement announced. And, and what was the significance of that? And how has that been playing out? So, right. Um, as we're all familiar with, uh, Johnson & Johnson was a player in this. Makers of talcum powder, baby powder. Yeah, they settled for $26 billion dollars. Um, which is, uh, it's, right. uh, it, they were part of a $26 right, billion right, dollar right, settlement. Right. They, they themselves are on the line for $5 billion. And then uh, I think I mentioned the three big distributors, mm -hmm. right. they're on the hook for $21 billion. So right. all of these are players in the sort of big pharma industry. Oh, yeah. And so, so these are, all, but this isn't the entire universe, right? No. So we, we've, we've heard of Johnson and Johnson, but the name that first comes to a lot of people's mind, I think is probably like, we've heard of this drug Oxycontin. Yep. Um, and it kind of started in, in at least in, in my perception, it started as an Appalachian thing that was getting out of control and then really widely prescribed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and then, used by lots of people. That's a different manufacturer, Purdue mm. Pharma, right? Yep, that's right. They're not in this because, quite frankly, there are so many other issues involved. Right. Um, some of it involves criminal issues. Um, right. So, you know, there's people trying to avoid jail time. Right. Um, and so when that's the case and you're not just dealing with shareholders, but, you know, a, a family right. which owns uh, Purdue Pharma, I think uh, – 
You know, you've got a, a completely different calculus involved. Right. So, so that stuff is interesting, and yeah. there's a separate story that maybe we'll get to another time about what's going on with Purdue, the maker of Oxy. But at the moment, you know, big company J and J and these other big distributors are are a big share of this market, and this is the big stone to fall, right? And yep. it's before us now because we're kind of on the clock for. All right, the, the, the framework is in place for a settlement to come together, okay. and these various companies have sort of agreed to a general number, but now it's contingent on how many of these plaintiffs out there will be willing to – I mean, I guess it's it's sort of like a settlement of a conventional lawsuit. Forgive me, this isn't my, my cup of tea, but – you know, sometimes you say, I want a million dollars. And then mm-hmm. you end up saying, well, for 75 grand, will you give up the million dollars and we're done? That's the concept yeah. of a settlement. We're kind of talking about that here, right? For, for yeah. 26 million, the idea is extinguish the freestanding lawsuits or all those consolidated 3000 cases to the extent we can in the interest of here's certainty. Yeah. And you know, there's the other side of it, right? With the uh, people that are bringing the suits, there's other smaller parties that were definitely harmed Mm -hmm. and, you know, they stand to gain by not having been super involved in the last lawsuit by just signing on Mm -hmm. to these claims. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they don't have to pay those court costs and legal fees uh, as well. So it it makes sense for them as well. So $26 billion, that's a lot of money, even in a world where we talk about trillions on Capitol Hill. But, (laughs) but Michael, you have this 2% rule, right? You, you've referenced it many times. So if you, if you take the 26 billion, what does 2% mean for Maryland? What, what kind of numbers are we talking about? What is Maryland's cut potentially of this nationwide settlement of $26 billion? Yeah, I like this finger in the breeze on nationwide issues because those numbers sometimes escape us. But Maryland is just about an average size state in terms of population. We're small geographically, but we have you know, a little north of 6 million people and the country is a little north of 300 million. So we're like two cents on the dollar for America. So if, if we're talking about $26 billion, then in theory, the Maryland cut would be in the ballpark of 500 million bucks, not not dropping out of the sky in one moment. I mean, this is what we're talking about over a stream of years, but still, like that's the magnitude of what a Maryland share of that distribution could look like. And those would be resources that we really need on the ground because this epidemic is not over. Absolutely. I mean, just because some of the companies have started to yeah. cut back on these practices, there's a lot of people still in trouble with opioids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we hear about a fentanyl issue popping right. up every couple of weeks. Right, so, right. Um, yeah. And so now, DePaul, the, the reason why Attorney General Frosch was in the building or virtually this week was to talk to our local electeds about that number and how that's going to play out in Maryland and getting everyone to get on board with the settlement, right? There is an incentive for states and local governments to sign on here. And that's where we are in this process now, right? We need to get folks signed on to this. There is a date certain that we need to do it by. So where are we now in the calculus? What is the state looking to do? What are the counties and municipalities? saying and what is the deadline that everybody needs to to make a decision by to move this forward yeah so um september 4th um it was announced that you know enough states had signed on to uh at least to the liking of the parties that are defending these suits that they would like to proceed with the settlement um and so they uh made their 26 billion dollar um offer and essentially, the judge, as well as the defendants, set up a timeline wherein the states involved have to get have to opt in 
Um, and then also all their subdivisions, uh, meaning counties, also have to um, opt in by January 2nd of next year. So not too far down the line. January 2nd is coming up pretty right. quickly. Yep. So, so that's where we are now is that Maryland is among the states that have said this framework makes sense to us. And that's a decision led by the state's attorney general as the chief of, you know, the chief represent legal representative of the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, because there are so many individual suits that you've got the city of Hagerstown and Washington County are probably both themselves individual litigants yep. that it's a matter of, okay, Maryland's in in concept. Now let's find out how many of those individual Maryland suits can be part of this overall big you know, toboggan, right? Yeah. I, and I should note that, you know, by the state having opted in, they are entitled to some funds from the start. Um, But there is uh, a huge pot of money there that's available only if all the counties and um, some of the municipalities also hop on board as well. Right. And and, I mean, I can see how that structure works. I mean, once it starts turning into a conversation of dollars, it kind of drifts from policy. But to some degree, from the perspective of, okay, I mean, we're trying to settle as much of this as possible. So you create, you put a carrot out there for every one of the states. You want the Arkansas attorney general and governor to be trying to shepherd all their towns and cities in and let's get on board with this so we don't have to deal with 11 fledgling cases from Arkansas. Same debate in Maryland that there's an incentive. The the share that comes to Maryland writ large Mm -hmm. will be larger to the extent that both the state and the local lawsuits are part of this settlement. I mean, the math makes sense. Yeah. And then that means that uh, our attorney general is then charged with reaching out to, you know, Montgomery County, Baltimore City, and then also these smaller municipalities to make sure that they jump onto this and then they don't sue themselves. And so that's so, a, it's a pretty yeah. tough ask to get. There are 24 counties in Maryland. There are 157 municipalities. So you're saying now the attorney general <laughs> is tasked with getting everybody on board with with the outline of what he is proposing that yep. Maryland should take this deal. But then there's also something more to it, right? The attorney general then has to decide, you know, how this money that, again, is needed to protect our residents, to provide these public health services. And that's a partnership between the state and the local governments. We understand that. Yep. Everybody has thrown resources at this. But the attorney general has to decide how that's going to work, how much money is going to stay with the state, how much money is going to flow down to the counties, municipalities. And different states are doing different things in that regard. Right. And so it becomes difficult, I think, to get this many entities to agree on anything. But especially when you're you're dealing with such a sensitive issue like public health, like this epidemic, it becomes pretty complicated pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And uh, I should note that, you know, that while the attorney general gets to decide whether to opt in as for the state, um, the state gets to decide um, altogether how that money is going to be apportioned amongst all the counties. So, um, so, so as calendar watchers, (laughs) this this makes it even trickier, right? As far as who are the players in deciding this, um, the locals need to decide by January 2nd, whether we want to participate. And we know that the ordinary business of the General Assembly mm-hmm. won't convene until the second week of January. And mm-hmm. usually the allocation of funds is through a budget and appropriations process that is usually launched by the governor with the budget and then enacted through legislative action by the General Assembly. 
that so it's not as though this judge in Cleveland gets to tell the Maryland attorney general, no. you go ahead and spend all the money. Instead, we have this peculiar circumstance where the attorney general is trying to build a framework yep. to in, in to entice the locals to opt in and say, that deal looks good enough for us. We'll sign the paperwork. We'll join yep. the deal in hopes, and I think they're reasonable hopes and well-founded, that he'll then hand that framework to the General Assembly and say, please make good on this because Mm -hmm. everybody bought in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) But but so you're – just in case it wasn't tricky enough yeah. just to find a you know a formula and process that would scratch all these different itches and hurt all these different cats in addition to that then you have 188 new players who arrive in Annapolis on mass in later in January um, and they're part of this too right and so uh, you know from what i've gathered everybody who is involved with this and thinking about this the closest parallel that that we can come to is this huge tobacco settlement back in the 90s we've talked yeah. about this before on the podcast many people that are having to make these decisions about whether or not to opt in were not thrilled about what happened back then no. both no. as a matter of intergovernmental relationships and also with the uses of the eventual funding itself right so that also yeah. in case things weren't complicated enough as we keep laying out this whole scenario that also plays into this and people have that on their minds as they're as they're trying to decide whether or not to sign on to Attorney General Frosch's framework here. Yeah, I mean the master settlement, uh, the tobacco master settlement, which you're referring to from the '90s, did not put any restrictions on how the funds received by the states should be used. Mm-hmm. Um, and technically, um, what is being proposed at the uh, Ohio court level that doesn't need to be um, spent in any specific way either. But I think Attorney General Frosch has set up a deal where they're trying to make sure that the money goes towards its intended purpose, which is this opioid epidemic remediation. And and the General Assembly did, here in Maryland, Mm -hmm. the legislature did weigh in on this at, I don't know, like the bird's eye level just Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Because, I mean, the if your finger was in the breeze, um, mm. I think a lot of observers believe that we would be at a day like this at a roughly this time. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, the General Assembly built, I don't know, kind of the, the framework, a really big, broad framework for the kinds of things that ought to be uses and targets for funds if this day comes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not in enough detail that it's going to be the roadmap, the specific roadmap for what to do from here. But Maryland's already established a policy that we're going to do public health stuff with these dollars if and when they come. Um, so I think that's, I mean, we're going to be on that right track, but there's also an intergovernmental part of the tobacco settlement from the, I guess, the late 90s. And, and, and that being there are a lot of local governments who, who didn't play principal parts in litigation against tobacco companies and felt that at the end of the day, the money made it to the state house yeah. and didn't make it to the county seats. So, um, I think yeah. this was something that I heard from county officials for the last several years was we can't afford to just hope the states do do better by us on this this go round. Uh, so right. you know, there's a there's a once bitten, twice shy, and I, I I'm not I'm not trying to say that Maryland was in particular mm-hmm. no. a bad actor on this, but nationally, there's there's a lot of apprehension on this specifically because people remember tobacco. 
working on the local level in Baltimore City, I always felt like, uh, you know, the enforcement efforts could use a little more um, bolstering from the state mm -hmm. in terms of funding. Um, but, you know, uh, I think the state, you know, has to patch a lot of holes on, on, on any given moment. So I, I can completely understand it from the state's perspective too. Yep. It's, it's a, again, it's a tough calculus. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, uh, attorney general Frosch is, is really trying to thread a needle here. So it's a tough gig for, for the attorney general and for attorneys general across the country. He has developed a framework here. Like we've said, the goal is to make sure that this money is used to, to mitigate the effects of this crisis yep. in the most efficient way possible. So without getting too into the weeds, what are the, the main points of what is on the table now that counties and municipalities in Maryland are considering as to whether or not to sign on to this statewide framework and then therefore not be able to go and sue yep. these manufacturers, right? Because when you mm -hmm. sign this deal, you're, you're essentially saying you're we're not going to litigate, right? Yeah. We're going to go with this settlement we are not going to pursue our own litigation. So what's the framework that the attorney general has laid out to, to the local governments in Maryland? So first off, what's on the table here is uh, $411 million from the three distributors. Right. Um, and then Johnson & Johnson would be liable for $91.6 million right. to the state. So our rule of thumb pays off. It's about five hundred, about five hundred million. Yep. And you know, Maryland Michael loves that. Right that. When his rule of thumb pays off, yeah, like that's a, it's a good day. It's a good day. Smart. I would have never thought of it in those terms, but yeah. So really, um, it's split into three pots. The, the this money, according to the um, Frosch deal with the counties, mm -hmm. um, so it would be fifteen percent going straight to the state. 15% direct to our local governments, and that's going to be based on population and then also a formula that is based on the impact opioids have had on these individual jurisdictions. Yeah, how, how bad is your problem? Right? Exactly, right, right. exactly. Yeah, got it. Um, and then there's 70% that's going to be given to the state, but it, the state doesn't necessarily hold on to this money, okay? And this is where the right. tricky um, yeah. situation arises here. So 21.5% goes to the state and the state gets to decide how to spend this in targeted abatement funds. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. um, theoretically, the state could give this money to any county if they feel like the county is going to be using it for its intended purpose. Um, but, you know, there's no guarantee there. There's nothing written within um, the proposal that says right. how that money has to be spent. And then another 71.5% is actually going to go back to the locals. Um, but this is significantly more targeted than that 15% I mentioned earlier. So this is 71.5% of 70%. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's about half of the total then. Sure. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yep. But I mean, I, so, I think a lot of people probably hear your first, your 15% numbers at the front and say, yeah. hold on a second, 15% to the locals, that sounds bad, right? Yeah. But you do need to dig in a little bit to the details to understand exactly what this structure is. And it's not that the state plans on keeping all of the rest of the money. That's right. It's that the state would then distribute it to, to the local governments. Now, some local governments would say, we don't need a middleman. We don't need the state to, to take a role in that bump up that 15% and give more money directly to the locals. And again, this is not about being greedy. This is about no. protecting and providing these public health services, which cost money. Lots and so, of money. And so that, <laughs> but these numbers are kind of odd, right? If you were looking at this just yeah. glancing, you'd say that doesn't sound like a good deal, but you really do need to, to kind of dig into the numbers, right? Yeah. If you actually do all of the calculus here, um, locals get about 69.95% of the total settlement. 
but it's it's really about how that money is apportioned right. amongst the locals, um, which becomes a point of contention, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have within that 71.5% that I mentioned, right, of that 70%, you have one group of counties, counties that are that have a population above 240,000 mm-hmm. um, that don't have to apply for these funds. They just get it based on you know, their population and again, their opioid that formula. Um, yeah, that mm-hmm. same formula. And because then I guess part of the theory there has to be that like a jurisdiction as big as say Baltimore County mm-hmm. surely has a public, a, like a public health infrastructure sufficient to say, okay, this wave of dollars, yeah. do you have the, literally the, the people who can oversee and manage it over this stretch of time? Baltimore County, the answer is almost surely yes. Yep. And I, I, I guess, I think embedded in this structure is the answer for Garrett or Kent County. The answer might be maybe not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's a different avenue for smaller jurisdictions to pursue this pot of money rather than you're big enough. You definitely have it. Others would band together. Right. Yeah, the, the smaller counties kind of have to set up sort of what would be like a grant proposal, um, mm-hmm. and it's termed a a regional opioid abatement plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, having them jump through that added hoop um, to get these funds, uh, you know, it, it's it's it can be difficult. I, I've had right. to write grants before, yeah. and yeah. it's it's always like. Uh, you know, you've got a million different players that you got to get into one room, get information from them. And then, you know, you're synthesizing this into right. one 70 page document and then submitting it to the state for their approval. And then, you know, there's that lag of, well, did you fill out form X, Y, Z? And then, you know, eventually maybe you'll right. get your funds. Mm-hmm. And Michael, um, I can't help but compare right. this to like the CARES Act, right? We, we talked a lot about that and yeah. how that allocation worked where the larger jurisdictions got direct funding, mm-hmm. but then the mm-hmm. state parsed out the rest of it. And it's right. sort of the long lines of what you're saying is the larger jurisdictions probably have the infrastructure in place to handle right. that infusion of cash, but maybe the smaller ones don't, and therefore it went through the state. Yeah, I think there's, there's some nuts and bolts here that are different as well. Like – um, when, when the attorney general was talking about this and he was trying to talk about a, a you know, a, a sort of maybe rural region of the state, I, I think completely well meaning. He's, he's saying, yeah. well, like you, you might need an inpatient treatment facility with 65 beds. You may not need that just for Caroline County, but if you put one in Kent County, it might serve a region that crosses yep. three different counties and nine different municipalities. Mm-hmm. And so does that mean, okay, you've served like a person in crisis who lives in Caroline County gets, gets delivered to a place where they get exactly what they need, but they're now geographically in Kent County. How do you map that intergovernmentally? Mm-hmm. Right. So. Yep. You want to sell to Caroline County that their residents are going to receive service, um, but you may not be able to say that there was a check that was sent from you know Preston Street in Baltimore, and now it has landed in the hands of the Caroline County Agency because it's actually being delivered through a nonprofit partner who has a facility elsewhere, but they serve yeah. your region. Anyway, it's a roundabout way of mm-hmm. saying some of this stuff isn't as simple as who gets to build a building, you know, who who gets to hire the person. Um, we're talking about serving the people in all the parts of the state and and focusing on those who are still in crisis and, and continue to be. And you can 
definitely look to uh, Attorney General Frosch as having uh, noble intentions here. Mm -hmm. I mean, every part of the um, agreement that he's proposed suggests we want this money to go for its intended purpose, just like what you've mentioned here. Like, so we want you to think through this think through how you're going to spend this money. And, uh, you know, I, it's hard to argue with that, right. but I, I, you, you can't not see what the locals are going to have to do in order to um, comply. So, so the weeks ahead are a negotiation, yeah. and that was sort of where we left things with our legislative committee, and and the attorney general has also had outreach with the legal community and local mm-hmm. governments at municipal and county levels. So the, the ball's rolling on that front. It's not as though he showed up with stone tablets and said, this is, etch, this is the deal, take it or leave it. Yep. What he basically did was, I'm looking for MAKO and MML and the local jurisdictions to give me guidance on how does this document serve your needs now and how can we change it? He, he must have used the word flexible mm-hmm. yep. 8, 10, 12 times in the space of a half hour, right? Right, right. So that's where we are. So I, I want to just, if, if you just turn this on or if you're right. fast forwarding, you're hoping to get just a, a quick yeah. you overview. You want to find out who done it, right? right. Get to who the end it? of the murder mystery. Oh, it's the butler. What's happening, right? Let me, yeah. let me recap the formula again. I'm just kidding. Let's just wrap this up with what do we know? Where are we going? How are we going to get there? So Michael and DePaul, give me like if I needed to know four or five things about what we've talked about today, what are the most important takeaways for our listeners as as they try to sift through all this and understand exactly what's on the table and exactly what has to happen moving forward? Well, I guess I'd I'd try and start and say we're we're trying to make a deal. Mm -hmm. Maryland as a state wants to be in on the deal. The local governments, meaning both counties and municipal governments, have an opportunity to opt into that deal. And to the extent they do so, the size of the pie for Maryland and its locals grows the wider the participation gets. Right? Mm -hmm. And I'd add that the AG has set up this this settlement – so that such that it's a pot of honey to entice the locals uh, into opting in and he's doing as much as he can to make sure that you know he's balancing the interests of our larger counties and our smaller counties alike mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so then there's mm-hmm. also the the how do you split the money between state agencies and the services they deliver and the things that are delivered locally principally by counties and to some degree by municipal governments, that state versus county split on the surface looks like it might be a bad deal for locals. You've got to peel the onion a layer or two deeper. Um, there's still probably going to be some folks who will look at, I, I, I saw what they did in North Carolina or in some other state, and I'd rather have that deal than this deal. So that's going to be part of this conversation about how much should be distributed back to locals as an incentive to, to sign up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what that means is that some folks are not going to be happy and they might decide to go it alone. Um, there's some jurisdictions that have had outsized issues and might just decide that they're better off pursuing a lawsuit on their own. And that is actually something that um, might come up before the legislature. So you might actually see the legislature intervene and then say, well, 
we're all going to sign on mm-hmm. because they can. Yeah. And so, again, you know, it, the, 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 if, if counties and municipalities don't sign on, the state takes a ding, right? That's the whole yep. idea mm-hmm. here is that you said, I think a good analogy, the attorney general has set this up as a pot of honey mm-hmm. and trying to draw everyone in because the more people that sign on, the better the state right. does, the better we all do, the bigger right. pot that we're able to get right. to, again, address this shared concern that the state and local governments have because these are all Maryland residents and it's, and it's a big issue. Right. So we got a yep. lot of people who are in need of service. We have a lot of jurisdictions who wish they could be doing more. We wish we had beds for treatment. We wish we had you know places where we could use as a redirection. We have too many people in our county jails who are there essentially as a function of substance abuse issues, much more than genuine criminal justice issues. We, we, we know this stuff is pervasive. So we want to deliver service like getting through this process is the means to to be able to deliver on what we owe an awful lot of our neighbors. So that's what we're dealing with moving forward. And of course, you've mentioned the General Assembly will be coming in in January. So the timelines don't exactly mesh well, but there may be a point where the General Assembly has a say in some of this as well. But but big issue. Any closing thoughts from you, DePaul or Michael, before we wrap up? This is like. Super complicated at the technical level and reading through even just the summary report that tries to describe what will eventually become a legal memorandum. Even just trying to read through the summary is complicated and tricky, but there's a big payoff here. This is something we really need to do, whether it's by individual lawsuits or by being part of this big settlement. We got jurisdictions in Maryland who are still unable to respond to this crisis the way they want to. We know these dollars can be part of that solution for the next, you know, decade or two. Like getting this right is awfully important. Mm-hmm. So it's worth digging into. It's worth the jurisdictions thinking this through. We want to pave the way for as good of a possible deal for the locals to have a clear opt-in that makes sense for them. And that, that's in Maryland's collective interest. So it's like got all that intrigue. It's complicated. It's important. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit technical. But like the, the bottom line is you really want to get this right. It's also very interesting that you have something of this magnitude happening in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no fool. You, you can't you can't forget that we are talking about a public health issue that's coinciding with another gigantic public health issue. Like once in a lifetime, we hope. So yeah. Um, so, I mean, assuming we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, we are going to be met with this terrible um, <laughs> epidemic that's mm-hmm. still occurring and ravaging our communities. So it's it's really important that we are able to spread our attention across multiple pub- public health issues at once. Right. Absolutely. That's a great way to, to, to wrap this up. And again, in the coming weeks, we'll have more on our legislative initiatives. And of course, this is going to continue to be a big issue. This, this opioid epidemic settlement that, that states are trying to figure out nuts and bolts, but we'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all of these episodes will be sent directly to the device of your choice. You can also follow along on social media. Facebook, Twitter, and then, of course, our Conduit Street blog. But for DePaul Nibber and Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off, and we will talk to you soon.